Why don't you uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, page 1705. Last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2. We looked at this truth about being reconciled to each other. The idea that a dividing wall of hostility has come down. That actually the church, the body of Christ now, has become a new humanity. A place where there should be no division, no hostility, no prejudice. That we have been formed into one new man. We're no longer strangers or aliens to each other. No longer strangers to God, but neither are we strangers or aliens to each other. Today we're continuing where we left off. We're starting in verse 19 of chapter 2. And we're going to look at this picture um, about the holy temple. We're looking at the idea of the holy temple. And really what it means is the church of God, the people of God, we're not talking about the buildings or institutions or anything like that, we're talking about the people of God have become a temple for the Holy Spirit, a place where the Holy Spirit dwells. And implicit in that picture is a picture of radical transformation. A picture that as the people of God are filled with his spirit, that they are changed, that they're going to look different. And so that's what we're going to unpack together. If you want to turn to page 1705, I'm going to read to you just verses 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this reality that you have formed us into a new nation, a new people, and now you're reminding us this morning that you've formed us into a holy temple. Would you help us to uh, grasp the gravity, the weight of becoming a dwelling place for your Holy Spirit? Would you help us to see the privilege that is? Would you help us to see what it means to become the holy people of God, to walk in holiness? Would you help us to become a church that is after your designs, that is pursuing your plan and purpose for our church? Amen. So why do we need to look at this? Let me give you a few reasons. The first of which is that the idea of of being holy is is often misunderstood, is often um, has tinges, has overtones of negativity. What I mean by that is often people will think of holiness really as kind of being holier than thou. A sense of, you know, people who are holy are kind of claiming to be something that they're not, like a sense of hypocrisy, of a kind of religious facade. But actually, really underneath it, they're just like everybody else. Or holiness is a sense of kind of saying, oh, look, we're holy over here and kind of retreat into a kind of holy huddle and uh, separate themselves off from the world. Maybe you... um, Also, the word holiness often seems to have very little um, application to our everyday lives. If you think of what holiness is, you might think of a a holy man in in church, like a religious leader, maybe speaking with a certain uh, tone in his voice or, or wearing certain clothes. Or you think of it as a kind of religious word that really seems to have no application to everyday life. So holiness feels irrelevant, it feels, separate, it feels like we're separating ourselves off from the world, it feels hypocritical, and it feels uh, a sense of judgment and, and kind of superiority. Well, actually, I want to show you really the, the essence of what holiness is this morning, and show you that actually it's more 
much more exciting than you realize and certainly much more relevant to everyday life. Second reason I think we need to look at this is because there's often, when we talk about becoming a holy church, there's often a sense of guilt and failure attached to that. A sense that God has set up some kind of uh, framework for life which we will never succeed in. And there'll be some of you, when we talk about holiness, just feel like I've already given up. There's no way I can seek to live the Christian life and seek to obey God's commands. And so this just feels like it's filled with condemnation and guilt. And you might say, if you saw my life, the last thing you would say about my life is that I am living in a holy way. Actually, I want to say that, suggest you've got it exactly the wrong way around. That actually Paul is really keen that you might understand that you have been made holy by Christ's sacrifice on the cross, and we'll go on to explain more about that. And because of the holiness that you've received, then you can walk in his holiness. Third reason we need to look at this. I think often the church, um, and I'm particularly talking about the church in, in kind of urban centers like London, the modern church does not pursue holiness. And what I mean by this is that often in our culture, one of the most powerful forces that is kind of been brought to bear on our lives is that desire, that, that sense to, to need to fit in with the rest of culture. And sometimes churches will buy into that same uh, need or, or fit sense in ourselves that we want to fit in with everyone else around us. As a result, they'll kind of not uh, proclaim the calling to live a holy life because it, it seems to um, undermine that sense that we're the same as everybody else. Churches worry that if they preach the full demands of Christ, that people will be put off. And so they kind of lower the bar. And sometimes it's just a matter that people are confused about grace. They think, we're grace people. We, we know that we're loved by God, so it doesn't really matter how we live. I want to show you that that's actually a, a misunderstanding of what grace is. Actually, there's all, this is a problem because holiness is something of a defining mark of the church. You know, when you've got a banknote and there are certain symbols and, and different uh, things on that banknote which, which tell you that that banknote is an authentic legal tender. Well, essentially what I'm saying is that Paul would argue that holiness, that sense of distinctiveness, a sense that, that Christ has come into your life and that's he's starting to shape how you live, that that is the defining mark of the church. That's how you can look at it and say, actually, no, this is genuine. These people are genuinely followers of Christ. Actually, when the church ignores this and actually just ends up looking like everybody else, there's something deeply wrong. Just, in, just as last week, uh, my hope is that we, we look at Paul's vision for who we are, what we're called to be, and that that would, seek to, that would um, have a kind of effect on how we do life together. It would, it, would, it would work its way out in our life together as a community. So if I'm, I'm kind of speaking to you, if you're part of this church, if this is your church, then I'm saying let's, let's see Paul's vision for who we are, for what, how we're called to live, and seek to then um, live this out, to in, in, uh, implement it together. So I want to unpack this picture that Paul's giving us of this holy temple in three ways. You want to say who, who we are. I want to say what, what does this look like? I want to say how, how do we do this? First of all, who we are, who are we? Who does this picture tell us we are? Well, the first thing it says about us is that we are a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. In verse 22, Paul describes the church as being built together into a dwelling place for God. And this is the essence of what the temple is. 
I don't know if you've looked at any of the passages in the Old Testament that describe the temple. Uh, one passage is in 1 Kings, where Solomon um, is, is called to build a temple for God. He calls it a house for God. At one point, he uses the word palace. There's a sense to which this is the place where they will tangibly experience uh, the, the, the glory of God, the dwelling of God in their midst. Of course, Solomon knows that when he's building the palace that God is not confined to temples, to buildings. He says, um, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. So Solomon knows that he's, this is not in any way saying that God is only in this temple. What he's saying is this is the tangible place when the people of Israel will meet with the living God. This is the place that they can pray, they can come and know that the God is with them. Actually, as he builds the temple, there's a moment when the Ark of the Covenant comes into the temple and, uh, and they dedicate the temple and the, the, it's literally filled with a cloud of the Spirit. The glory fills the temple. They know that God is present with them. And yet, in the new era, what this is saying is that the Spirit actually is not contained. God himself is not contained in buildings. There's not a a, a certain place that you need to go to in the world to to meet with the living God. Actually, it says that the Holy Spirit has come to live inside individual believers. Saying that you, that that all other temples, remember when this is written, that the temple still stands in Jerusalem. He's writing this in Ephesus. There are certain temples given over to different deities. He's saying they are all um, kind of fakes, essentially, that this, that you are now the real, authentic temple of the living God. You are where God has chosen to dwell. Now, I wonder if we've understood the significance of this. You've got to consider what the temple is. This is an incredible place which has been dedicated to the presence of God. Think about the way that the temple had all those different um, minute details to prepare it to be the place where God would dwell. The, the golden um, altar, the, 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 the cherubim um, on the back of the temple. Think about the, the tabernacle, all the different details that God uh, outlines in Leviticus to describe how this place needs to be. Why? Because it's a special place. It's a holy place, a place set aside for the dwelling of the Lord. And yet now God has chosen you, chosen me, chosen us to be this special, sacred place that where God has chosen to dwell. It's an incredible privilege. It means that God can be known. Non-Christians, if you're not a Christian, you might say, how can you follow a book written 2,000 years ago? How can you uh, seek to kind of uh, apply these teachings to your lives? Now, we would say it's not just a book. We'd say, actually, this is the very words of God spoken through different people in different times, um, all throughout hundreds and thousands of years. But more than that, we would say we are the people who've encountered the living God. It's not just that we're following something that is outside of ourselves. Actually, that God has come to live inside us. And actually, that we we know God. God can be known. We've experienced him changing us, a work in our lives. It means if you want to know God, you need to go to the church. You know, sometimes you might think, how, you know, the different, if you're not a Christian here, you might think, how do I know God? How, people talk about God as spirit. Maybe I need to just sit in my bedroom at home and just ask God to speak to me. Or maybe I need to go on a pilgrimage to a certain holy, special place, and that's where I'm going to see God. Actually, what this says is if you really want to know God, you need to come to the church. You need to come to the very people who have encountered the living God, that God has come to live in them because they know God, and you will see God at work in them. 
So if you're not a Christian, the most important thing you can do is come and immerse yourself in the life of the church. Come and see us. Come and uh, get to know us. Come and see the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I think you will see God in us. One of my colleagues um, a few years ago were, uh, came to a birthday party I had where I had uh, my friends who weren't Christian, some of my friends who weren't Christians, some guys from Grace uh, there together. And what was really interesting is he said to me, I can see your friends from church are, are different and I don't think he was saying like they're weird or anything like that, um, much as you might think that. Um, he was saying, actually, what was really interesting is how willing they were t- to admit their weaknesses, essentially how humble they were. And I thought about it for a little while. I think, actually, no, that's absolutely right. You can see that is a mark of the Holy Spirit's work in their lives, that God has humbled them. And actually, they, they in some way carry something of a sense of, of knowing God, of how he's touched them and shaped their lives. And he can see that. I'm convinced that if you're not a Christian and you're just starting to look in, actually, the more time you spend with us, the more time you see us around us, you'll see the way the Holy Spirit has been work, at work amongst us. I think it also reminds us of something of the heart of God, something of God's desire to be united with his people. Think about right from the beginning of the Bible, the, the Garden of Eden, where God dwells with Adam and Eve. He walks in the garden with them. Or the, the, the tabernacle and the temple. There's this kind of thread running through the Bible where God desires to dwell with his people. So they, they reject his authority in, in the Garden of Eden. They, they uh, remove themselves from his presence. And instead, he gives them the tabernacle, then the temple, a means by which they can come and meet with the living God. He longs to dwell with his people. Of course, Christ himself describes himself as the living temple. Saying, actually, when you come and see me, you've seen God. I am a God in the flesh. So he is, he is God's presence amongst us. And now Christ has gone back to be at the right hand of the Father. He's left us with his spirit. He dwells with us. And of course, one day it points to the end of time, the end of history, when all, hum- all humanity, all those who call um, on the name of Christ, who believe in his name, will be united with him. That's what it says in Revelation. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be, with, be, will be their God. Saying, actually, in a sense, now as you experience the work of the Holy Spirit amongst you, you get a taste, just a glimpse of what it means to know the living God, to encounter him. But actually, one day, this points to the reality. We talked about last week how the church is a show home, a picture of that one, that future new creation reality. Actually, this is just a glimpse of the future, that one day we will be united face to face with Christ, that he will come to dwell with us in the new heavens and the new earth. So it speaks of God's heart to be united with his people. It also speaks, this picture is also a picture of being united together in the spirit. You see, it's not an individualistic idea. Verse 22, it says, in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Saying you, together you've been formed into this holy temple. Think last week we looked at these two ideas. The, the idea that you've been formed into a new nation and a new family. But this is even taking it a step further. Saying not only, you know, if you're in a family, you can kind of detach from the family. If you're in a nation, you can kind of go to another country. Actually saying, you don't have, you don't, you don't have a choice here. You've been squeezed into a temple together, brick by brick, next to each other. And as you're squeezed together, you're, being, you're rubbing up against each other and, and kind of being shaped in the process. It's a picture of incredible unity. Actually, that the Spirit has formed us together to, where the, uh, to be a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. Actually, this is a real challenge to what, what some of us might do, what we call a privatization of our faith, the way we might um, take our faith very individualistically. 
Sometimes people will say to me, oh, I'm, not really, I'm not coming to church this morning. I'm going to do church at home with God. Me and God, we're going to be church. I want to say, absolutely, that's not possible. The church is the gathering. The gathered people of God. So when you, you can't do church on your own because it's you're with the people of God. This speaks actually of the reality that this is where God comes to dwell. Of course God dwells individually in you by his spirit, but actually there's a sense to which you will only capture the fullness, you'll only uh, capture the full essence of who God is when you're in community together. And you see this in a few ways. I see this in the way that when I'm with other people, I see different aspects of God's character that I wouldn't see myself. I think about Jen, my wife, she is a person who is just living and breathing mercy and compassion. That's kind of her spiritual gift, and that's uh, her as a person. It means when I spend time with her, when we talk about uh, Jesus' ministry, and we look at the Gospels together, that is what strikes her the most. We're reading the same Bible, but the thing that comes so obvious to her is Christ's love for the outsider. And I'm it's a blind spot of mine. I don't necessarily see it as quickly as she does, but it's a sense to which she's challenging me. Some of you are passionate evangelists. It means you love and desire and you want to take the gospel out into the world. And when I spend time with you, I'm, I'm reminded again of how important that is. I'm, I'm reminded of, of just uh, what a privilege it is to take the good news out into the world. Or some of you are, are prophetic people, are people who maybe God has gifted to hear his voice particularly. And when I listen to, when I spend time with you, when, you, when I pray with you, I, I'm struck again by what a privilege it is that God speaks to us. So we are, we are intentionally one body. We need each other to correct our blind spots. It also means we just prioritize gathering together. We don't isolate ourselves. We share our spiritual lives together. We have to be willing not just to, to do life together, not just to spend time in community, but actually to be honest about how we're doing with God, about what our walk with God looks like, to be willing to, to ask each other the hard questions and to walk with God together with our brothers and sisters. It also means we experience the work of the Holy Spirit together. Actually, if you, start, if you see this, then you'll, when you work through the book of Acts, you'll see that m- most of the time when they talk about the God coming to dwell with them, they're gathered together. Think about Acts 13. The, the church is gathered together, and it says, together they heard set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. Actually, that God has spoken to them as a, as a people to send Paul and Barnabas out. It means we discern the will of God together in community. We listen together. We test words together. We pray for each other. We share wisdom for each other. We call out the gifts that we see in each other. It means we, we seek the will of God together in community. You, I would encourage you not to do it in isolation, but instead seek to do that together as a family. It means the gifts of the Spirit are intended to edify us together as a body. So it's, this cannot be taken individualistically. But also, I think the final bit of this, this who, of what, what it's saying about us, is, this, is a really talking about holiness. What about the holiness of the temple? How does this relate to us? It says, we have been made holy. We've received the gift of holiness from Christ. It's not that we've worked up enough holiness. It's not that we've um, conformed our character enough, that we've scrubbed ourselves clean, that finally God says, okay, you're ready, you can be formed into the temple, you will make a little space for you and put you there in the temple. It's not that at all. Actually, what it's speaking about is as if you are a follower of Christ, if you've believed in him, not only have you received his forgiveness, you've also received the gift of his holiness, of his perfection, of his character in you. What does this mean? Well, in, in Hebrews 10, it says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. This speaks of the temple system where the sacrificial lamb was a means of purification. 
that when the lamb was sacrificed on the, for the people of God, that they were purified. They were washed clean. They could enter into the presence of God. He's saying that Christ is that sacrificial lamb for all who believe in him. It means that you've been washed clean. You've been purified. The picture of this is like the bride. In, later on in Ephesians, he talks about a bride who is, who is uh, without imperfection, who is totally pure, who has been washed clean, prepared to meet her, bride, meet her bridegroom. It's a picture of total purity and holiness. And it's Christ saying that because of his sacrifice, that is who you are. Or baptism by immersion. If you've seen someone be baptized here, they're lowered into the water. They're, they're brought out. They're totally submerged. It's a picture of being washed, being purified, being set apart, being made holy. It's saying you've been included in this holy temple because you have received Christ's holiness. When God sees you, he sees Christ's perfect character. And that actually is not just like some sort of superficial thing where he's kind of uh, draped a white sheet over you and said, you know, just hiding the imperfections of your heart. Actually, it's a holiness that changes your heart. In Ezekiel 36, it says, I will give you a new heart. This is prophetic. Hundreds of years before Christ, it says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Saying, God, when you come to faith, God has given you a new heart to be able to obey him. A new, desi- new desires. A heart of flesh. He's talking about a softness, a willingness to hear God's voice, to be obedient to him. You know, Jeremiah talks about uh, the, the way that the law has been written on your, on your heart. Saying that you, you don't always need to hear it from someone else. Actually, you have a desire to obey God. Now, I'm not saying as a Christian that you will always want to obey God, but I'm saying that your heart has been changed. You have a new potential for obedience. This is why Paul can tell Christians in, t- in his letter to, to the Corinthians that they are a new creation. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Saying you're totally different to what you were before. Of course, you're still battling the flesh. Of course, you will still sin. The desires of the old man will bubble up inside you but you have been changed. So you've got to hear the logic here. It's absolutely essential you hear this. You have received Christ's holiness. You've been made holy. You've been included in this beautiful, gleaming, white, holy temple of the Lord. So now walk in it. So now, now walk, work that out. May your life reflect your identity that you have been made holy. So there's a calling to be holy, but it's because you've received a holiness from the Lord. You're part of this beautiful temple, so don't stoop into sin. So what does it mean then? What is, I think there's a real, we've got to try and kind of clarify, what does it mean to walk in holiness? Well, the first thing I think it means is a fleeing from sin. It means that personally, individually, now you are a member of the body of Christ. Now you're part of this holy temple. You need to flee. You need to run away from sin. Consider this temple analogy. It says you're, you've been dedicated to God. This is a holy and sacred place. You know, uh, it, it, later on in 1 Kings, after uh, Solomon built the temple, the people of God uh, turn away from him and start p- uh, setting up idols in the temple. They, they desecrate the temple with all sorts of idolatry. And you can hear the kind of wrongness about this, that the king uh, Josiah has to kind of go through the temple and remove all the, all the idols, all the things that they've been worshipping, false gods. They've desecrated this, this sacred, wonderful, holy place and turned it into a place of idolatry. 
And what Paul's saying is just hear the wrongness when you walk in sin, when you, when you take this holy temple that you've been given and then give it over to sin, actually you're, you're destroying, you're desecrating this, this beautiful temple that you've become in Christ. That's why Paul instructs the Corinthian believers not to be united with a prostitute in sex outside marriage. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Saying the problem is you've forgotten how valuable you are how much you've been included in this temple. Don't lower yourself and be uh, united with a prostitute in one flesh in sexual union. Don't do that. Actually, instead, recognize this pure and holy place that you have become. This speaks to that desire in many of us, and I can relate to it, to what we call tolerating sin. Maybe you think, well, sin doesn't really hurt anybody else. Maybe this, this lustful thought I'm indulging in, maybe this, whatever else you, I, I'm doing, maybe, I'm, maybe you're watching movies illegally online and saying, well, no one's really being hurt by this. It's very easy to tolerate sin in your life. Sometimes it's just because it's the path of least resistance. It's the easiest thing to do is just to give in to that temptation that you're feeling. Paul is saying, don't you realize how holy you are Don't you realize that this isn't who you are anymore? Don't desecrate the temple of the living God. Sin doesn't belong here. Saying, don't play with sin. Don't open the door a little bit. Don't put your hand, you know, like how little children will sometimes kind of, they they know they're not allowed to do something, but they just kind of edge closer and closer and closer and look at that thing. That's kind of how we treat sin sometimes until until we do it, until we get our hands burnt. Of course, there are times that we will give in to temptation. In fact, it's a daily, frequent occurrence. But when we recognize our sin, we're quick to turn around and to say, this is not who I am. I need to, need to give this up. Now, when you hear this call to holiness, there's a real danger that you're going to hear and feel that God is just some sort of killjoy. That, uh, uh, it's kind of saying, you know, I've just got this set of commands and an alien, uh, alien commands that feel really difficult and he's just it kind of doesn't really feel like he's there for you. What you've got to combine this with is one other picture about sin is sin is slavery. Saying Christ is saying, look, I've, rede- I've redeemed you from slavery. I've brought you out of slavery. I've brought you, I've rescued you from that difficult place. Now don't go back to it. Don't voluntarily resubmit yourself to slavery. You've been freed. He knows what's best, to, best for you. You'll get nowhere on this until you believe that's true, that Jesus knows what's best for you. Of course, this has very little implications for you if you're not a Christian. Because this is, this is a call for the Christian. Actually, if you're not a Christian here, it, the Bible actually expects that you wouldn't follow Christ. I mean, why would you? So this is not some generic call to morality. This is the call to be obedient to who you've become in Christ. So this is individual, but it's also communal. There's a sense to which the, com- the church must become a community which together flees from sin. We have a responsibility for our own sin, but also to guard against sin becoming the the dominant and accepted way of life in the holy temple in the church. Which is why Paul, in in his letter to the Corinthians, makes a very radical uh, command. There's a man who is sleeping uh, in a sexual relationship with his mother-in-law, with his stepmother, his his father's wife. I don't think it's his mother, but his stepmother. And and this man is claiming to be a Christian, 
He's claiming to follow Christ, but he's brazenly, not, not kind of struggling with it. He's saying, I'm going to continue doing this, and I'm a follower of Christ. And Paul's answer is very radical. He says, remove that man from you. So don't recognize him as a Christian. Um, in some way, separate yourselves from him. Why? Well, one, for the sake of that man, that he would realize that what he's doing is utterly incompatible with following Christ. That actually what that man is doing is removing himself from the body of Christ by choosing to openly and unrepentantly walk in rebellion to Christ. So you're doing it for the sake of that man, that he might be ashamed and might turn in in repentance and recognize his wrong and turn back to Christ. He's also doing it for the sake of the church. He talks about the the way the leaven of the Pharisees will kind of, you know, like a loaf, a loaf? Yeah, bread. Um, that, um, that yeast will kind of um, pollute uh, unleavened bread. Forget it. We'll talk about it. Another. I'll, 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 <laughs> um, I'm not going to get the analogy for you, but um, the point is, what he's saying is that actually there's a sense to which as the church accepts and um, tolerates sin, uh, that actually that becomes a sense of what you're saying to Christians is this is what it means to follow Christ. So there's a sense to which you've got to protect the body. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the church is a place for people who don't sin because everybody's, every Christian is a sinner. So it's not saying that somehow you're counted out of the body of Christ if you sin. Not at all. Or anything that, any sense that you're not loved by God as you sin, that he loves you and was calling you to himself, calling you to obey him in all his fullness. What it's saying is that if you walk in open, unrepentant rebellion to God, if you say, I'm going to oppose you and I'm not going to go your ways, that there is a vital inconsistency between that and calling yourself a Christian. And Paul's saying something has got to change if that's the case. Behind this radical example really is Paul's vision for the church. That it is a community that encourages each other, that does this, this, that pursues holiness together, that fights sin together. They require us to be honest with each other to be non-judgmental when we share what's going on in our lives, the things we're struggling with, that we don't condemn each other, we don't kind of remove ourselves from each other in a moment, but actually that we love each other and encourage each other, and most of all, that we remind each other of the grace of God. That If we're going to walk through sin together, we are constantly proclaiming that we've been washed clean, that we've been made this holy people of God, that this sin doesn't belong to us, that we have a, we have a responsibility to remind each other of the gospel. But... But holiness cannot be reduced just to sin avoidance. It's also a sense of consecration, of dedication. Think about the way the temple is dedicated to the presence of God. It means Christians must reckon themselves dedicated to God, to reckon their lives as under his service. What does it mean to be dedicated or devoted to something? Think about a parent with a disabled child how they devote their lives to caring for them. Or think about someone who you say is devoted to their career. What it means is that, that career, their career is the most important thing in their lives. Or think about someone who is devoted to a particular political cause. It means that's what, they're, that's what they're obsessed with. It's what captures their heart. That's what he's talking about. When he's saying to dedicate your lives to God, it means to say, to put everything through the filter of what does it mean to follow Christ? Not saying that you'll only do spiritual things, that you won't go to work or anything like that, but that everything comes under the, the, the lordship of Christ. Everything, everything you do is a matter of worship. That as you, as you work at your desk, as you use the gifts he's given you, actually you can use this as an opportunity to glorify God, to say thank you for the gifts you've given me. May I do this to your glory. So it means dedicating everything you are, your whole life, to God. It also means a transformed character. You know, you might be sitting there thinking, well, I don't really struggle with any of the big sins. 
and um, I don't, uh, I've kind of dedicated my life to God, so I'm kind of, I'm pretty all right. Actually, I think that misses a huge part of holiness. Holiness is about a changed person, a changed person from the heart, that as the heart is changed by the Spirit, so our lives will look radically different. Holiness is Christ-likeness, that we become conformed to the image of the Son. It means the Christian is intended to become like Christ. It's why the early Christians, even though they describe themselves as the followers of the way, that's how the label Christian came about, essentially being described as mini-Christs, saying that actually as you follow Christ, you'll become more like him. It means that holiness has application in every part of our lives. It's not that holiness is just for Sundays or just kind of some kind of part of the religious meeting. It means holiness is about your character being reshaped. It means we'll see where the, the real essence of your holiness in the difficult situations. How do you treat people when no one else is looking? How do you treat that receptionist or how do you treat that, uh, that cleaner? How do you treat the people who, in a sense, have, it doesn't really matter how you treat them from the outside world's perspective? How do you treat that annoying colleague who everyone else is complaining about? How do, you, um, how, do you love, how do you treat your boss who makes really difficult demands on you? Of course, it's easy to love your friends. What Christ is calling us is to love our enemies. It means the holiness of your character will be displayed in the difficult situations of your life. I think about this one with one of my colleagues. I used to, uh, we just had a kind of different personality. Talking about before I came to work for Grace, um, <laughs> like we we just we're just different people, and we just kind of you know we just feel like a two years we worked together. It's basically just me and him. Our boss went on maternity leave, so like we were a team of three, and then just two. And basically, we naturally we didn't get on very well. Um, <laughs> and so it's just a daily struggle of just dying to self every day of choosing to love him. It wasn't easy all the time. But that was, that's a sense of I felt like that time, in that time of my life, that relationship, my work relationship, was the time that I felt God was growing my character the most and was changing me. It means holiness will mean you look different. There's no point in denying it. There's no point. I think it's so kind of counterintuitive that Christians would, would go around life trying to fit in with everybody else. Because of the very essence of saying you're not, who, you're not like everybody else. You've become the holy temple of the living God. That you have God's Holy Spirit at work in you, changing you. So stop trying to fit in with everybody else because it's kind of pointless. And if you look like everyone else, what does the Christian faith have to offer the world? I also would argue that holiness is missional. It's easy to think of holiness as a kind of separation from the world and a kind of becoming a holy huddle that looks down on everyone else. And of course, there are times you're going to have to remove yourself from situations, maybe times of particularly profound temptation, maybe thinking if you struggle with alcohol, maybe you would choose not to drink. You just say, I don't want to bring myself into that anymore. I don't want to put, that, uh, put myself in temptation that way. But to conflate holiness with separation is to miss the point. The people of Israel were called to be a holy nation, not so that they would just become a kind of uh, holy huddle on their own, but so that they might display the holiness of God to the nations. See, holiness is a gift that we might image the beautiful holiness of the living God to the world around us. So too, Christians should live as, new, as the new creations that they are to point to the new creation reality. That you are a new creation pointing to a world, to the new creation that is coming. What do I mean by this? Well, just think of the fruit of the Spirit. You know, in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Think about a world where those are the dominating characteristics of human relationships. That is, I, I suspect, that is something that gives you a flavor of what the new creation will feel like. A place where people aren't abused, but they're loved. 
a place where people feel real joy and contentment. They're not trying to chase the next hedonistic high, nor are they left in in some kind of hopeless despair. Actually, they just feel contentment and joy, where everyone's at peace with each other. They're no more fighting over their desires or fighting to destroy each other in an endless pursuit of success. A world where no one's trying to aggressively push past each other, but instead each person is valued and listened to. A world where people are treated with dignity. People don't need to look down on other people to try and justify themselves. Where everyone is honest, where no one feels the need to puff up their CV with half-truths. A world where everyone looks after their bodies rather than trying to destroy themselves in the pursuit of success and glory. That is the world. That is just a, a, just a tiny glimpse of what the new creation might look like when you consider what holiness is. And that is a beautiful world. It's a beautiful place. And as we as, we as a church seek to live out these, these commands, this command to holiness, actually we create a little microcosm, a little microclimate of just a small world where people might see something of the beauty of the new creation. And of course, behind that, the beautiful God. Holiness is beautiful. They point to a world where there's no more sin, there's no more suffering, and there's no more death. We want to be such a distinctive people that when people come into our family together, they say, I don't understand why you're so different. Why is everyone so kind here? Why is there no bitterness in this community? Why is everyone so honest about what they're struggling with? And we say that holiness is a glimpse, that, that, just a glimpse of the beauty of the one who is far more beautiful than us, Jesus Christ. They will, of course, see us fail. They'll see us sin. Yet they should also see a bouncy resilience to get up because we know that we've been washed clean, that we've received forgiveness, and that we are his holy people. So how do we do this very quickly? Well, the headline is you can't do this on your own. It would be foolish to think so. When we see the, the, the great majestic sweep of what holiness is, the first thing we should feel is it's totally impossible. If that's how you feel, then you've got something right here. Actually, because not only have we received the grace, the forgiveness of God, we also receive the grace, the empowering presence of his spirit to enable us to become the people that God's called us to be. The most important thing that we know here is that this picture is a picture of the spirit building the temple up. It says, um, in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. It's an organic picture. The spirit is at work building this temple together. I think it means a few things. I think it means that he's squeezing them together. We're growing together in love. That's what we talked about last week. Talking about how he's building new stones on that temple that as people come to faith. But I think he's also talking about the way that he is building them, reshaping them more to be like the cornerstone. As, they, as, the, as the, 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 the each living stone in this temple, each one of you are being shaped by the Spirit to become more like the cornerstone, Christ. Paul talks about, describes the work of the Spirit in the next chapter as a power at work within us. That list of, of the fruit of the Spirit is exactly that, a fruit of the Spirit. It's God's work in you. They're birthed by the Spirit's work in us. This promise of the Holy Spirit is particularly relevant for those of you who feel anxious and defeated in your battle against sin. Those of you who look around your life and just say, I feel utterly overwhelmed and I cannot do this and I'm just a complete failure in this area. I think the promise of the Holy Spirit is meant to encourage you that it does not rely on you. That it is the work of the Holy Spirit changing your heart, giving you new desires, and reshaping you to become the people of God. 
There's nothing wrong with you coming to God in your, on your knees. I, in fact, I'd encourage it, saying, I can't do this. Would you come and empower me by your spirit and change me to become the person you've called me to be? So it's meant to encourage us that the work does not depend on, on us. It also should mean we're never completely crushed by our sin, never overwhelmed by a sense of, wow, you know, when you're challenged by God on a certain area, it means that you're, that's never the full end of the story. It means that whatever you're struggling with now, that won't be the end. That's not what you'll look like one day when Christ comes back to, to judge the living and the dead. It's also the basis for humility. It means that there'll be moments, I suspect, on your Christian walk when you might look back and say, actually, I can see the way that God has changed me. How, I, how he's given me a new love for that colleague who's really difficult. Again, not talking about personal experience. Grace London. Um, Sarah can rest assured at the back. Um, or, or, how do I, or how do I love that person I'm feeling resentful to in life group? It means there might be moments that you can look back and say, yeah, I can see that God has changed me. But at that point, it's not a, a moment to pat yourself on the back and say, well done me. It's a moment to celebrate what God is doing in your heart. But of course, we have a role too. It's not that we just, you know, uh, let go and let God, as some people might say. That's the opposite, I think, of the picture of, of what it means to be transformed by the Spirit. Uh, one theologian said, the idea that Christian holiness is to be attained by every person simply doing what comes naturally would actually be funny if it wasn't so prevalent. The point is, this will feel difficult. I think it means a lifetime of ongoing repentance, of putting to death the old man, a daily dying to self. And of course, death doesn't feel easy. Sometimes it will mean saying no to desires that feel very strong within us. But it means he will create new desires in you. But you must make a choice to follow those new desires. Repentance is not something we just do every now and again, like maybe once a week when we come to church. It's something we're doing daily, moment by moment, as we recognize the old man, the flesh rearing its head in our lives, that we say no to that and ask the Spirit to fill us and to change us, to make us more like him. Of course, we know that we, this battle against sin will be an ongoing reality until we meet Christ face to face. And in a sense, as we experience the frustration of that battle, the frustration of seeking to live the holy life that we've been called to, that, we have, that is in keeping with who we are, actually that struggle, in a sense, I think it's totally right that that leads us to look forward to the day when there'll be no more struggle, when sin is no longer a present reality for us, that we have been made into this fully holy people with Christ in a place where there's no sin anymore. So as the band comes up, I just want to leave us with a few thoughts. As we worship together, we can marvel at Christ's work. Marvel that because of his death on the cross, the sacrificial lamb has given his life for us and has made us totally pure, totally holy. If that's news to you today, then it is a great opportunity to celebrate that reality that you have been made holy by Christ that you've been joined into his holy temple and to give thanks that that is who we are. Second of all, it's an opportunity to marvel at the gift of Christ's church, to see this, I think it's like a map that, Christ is, that Paul is giving us here in this passage, a map of, what, of who we are to become, of who the people of God are, this beautiful community of brothers and sisters living out this Christ-like holiness with each other learning to love each other, learning to lay down their lives for one another, learning to express kindness, gentleness, self-control, that as the church becomes just, just glimpses of that, remember it's a map, it's not where we are now, but it's what we're running towards. As we just make steps towards that, as that becomes more of our reality, I think there's something profoundly beautiful about that, and we can celebrate that as God's work.
If you're not a Christian, then I think you need to hear that you're currently outside of this. You remain cut off from God and outside of the people of God. But what, what the offer is, is though your sins have made you scarlet, you're currently not washed clean, that Christ offers you to come to him and to be washed clean.